Thank you for joining us today for worship. Um, I know normally we, we, we start off with uh, some scripture reading, but I'm just going to share a quick story about me and my wife. Uh, we, we don't uh, often get headaches. My wife and I, I thank God for that. I know some people do struggle with uh, chronic migraines and, and things like that. But uh, when we do get headaches, in my three years of being married to her, I realized that we have very different approaches uh, to solving this problem, the problem of the common headache. Uh, for me, I take two simple steps. Grab a cup of coffee, pop an extra strength Tylenol, and I'm good to go. Right? That is my game plan. I always do that. That's my MO, uh, and it works. 30 minutes, I feel better. However, my wife has a very different approach. Uh, she drinks a lot of water. She drinks a lot of water, tries to get more rest. And when I asked her why she doesn't just use my foolproof method, right, just a little bit of caffeine, right, a little bit of Tylenol, and you're good to go. Uh, she told me that most of her headaches are as a, as a result of being dehydrated and tired. Um, so that's her thing. She's dehydrated, drink more water, uh, not coffee, right? And coffee is not the thing you, you drink when you're dehydrated. Uh, now, what's the difference between our approach? Right? What's the difference between my methodology and hers? And the difference is that my method is one of medicating the symptoms, Right. My method medicates the symptoms. I have discomfort. I have a headache. I want Tylenol and caffeine to make that pain go away. Whereas hers attempts to address the cause. Right? Why is she getting these headaches? Is it dehydration? Is it a lack of rest? And so she addresses that appropriately. She is clearly a much wiser person than I am. I am clearly more impatient than she is. Now, it's true that my solution is a lot faster and it's a lot more convenient. But the problem is that simply medicating away my discomfort, it doesn't make me a healthier person. It doesn't get to the reason why I may be getting headaches. I'm not learning more about myself. I'm not getting to the source and the cause. I'm just trying to deal with the surface level discomforts and pains. Church, are you guys like me? Are you guys like me, prone to medicate and look for a quick solution to your discomfort? Or are you more like my wife who seeks to address the real cause and the root of her discomfort? Right? Think about that. Which is your MO? Medication or you really wanna figure out what's going on in you? Like what's the cause? What's the source? Think about this. How do you handle your stress or disappointment? Think about the last time you were really stressed Maybe the last time you were disappointed, you didn't get the job offer you wanted or the grade you wanted or the girl you wanted or whatever it might be, or you're just really frustrated with your kids or work, whatever it might be. How did you handle that? How did you respond to that stress or disappointment? Did you hit up Amazon, eBay, right? Old Town Pasadena, a little retail therapy, or what did you eat, right? So many of us are stress eaters, right? When we get disappointed, when we get sad, we need cake. I'm a big donut guy. I had some donuts last night. I mean, it's, I don't look it, but I love donuts. I'm a donut fanatic, right? When I get stressed, my sweet tooth comes at me hard, right? Or to just Netflix binge, right? When you were disappointed, when you were frustrated, you just started watching Stranger Things and you never stopped, right? Until you finished the whole season. Or you picked up the latest K-drama. I just want to say one thing about retail therapy. It is real, okay? Retail therapy is real. I can testify to it. I confess, I love shopping. 
I love buying golf balls, golf clubs. When I get bored or when I get frustrated, I just go online and I start researching golf clubs. I love buying clothes, J. Cruz sale rack, 40% off. That gets me excited, right? And I'm gonna say this, when I buy something, I feel better. I do. I love toys, gimmicks, gadgets. I got a bunch of Amazon gift cards. And so I started researching, what do I wanna buy on Amazon? That was fun for the entire, that kept me occupied for a week. What, what am I gonna buy on Amazon with all of my gift cards? And when it came, I had to ship to church because it's safer here, right? I went out of my way through traffic because I didn't have to come into the office that day. I came in to pick up my iPad because I bought an iPad with all the gift cards. I was so excited, you know what? I'm already bored of it, right? I'm already bored, it's been a week, right? But this is what we do with real retail therapy. It does make us feel better. Question is, how long does it last? What's the last thing you bought to make yourself feel better? How long, how much joy did that actually produce in you? A week? You'll be lucky if it was a week. For many of us, it's like three days, two days, one day, right? A couple hours maybe. And then you get bored again. And you get stressed again. And you get dissatisfied. But here's the thing. Even though we all know that, I'm not saying anything you've never heard before, even though we all know retail therapy doesn't produce lasting, true happiness and joy, we keep doing it because we don't know what else to do. We keep medicating ourselves because there's no other solution that we have. And so that one week of happiness is better than none at all. Those three days of joy and playing with your new toy, that new video game, that new makeup you bought, or whatever it might be, like that, that's better than nothing. But I want to tell you that God has something better for you. God has a better way for you to deal with your discomfort, with your pain, than medicating it away with food, with shopping, with worldly and temporary things. Are you tired of medicating? I am. God has a better way and he wants to show us what, how we can better deal with you know, our sorrow, our frustration, our dysfunction. We're in the second week of our series titled Renovation by Grace. And it's all about experiencing the life transformation in Christ that we all so desperately need. It doesn't take much self-reflection to realize that there are a lot of things we need to change in our lives. Right? Uh, whether we're struggling with stress, unhappiness, anger, loneliness, apathy, or any other issue, we are faced with two options. You either medicate your problems away or, like my wife so wisely does, identify the root, identify the cause, identify what are the core issues, and then seek to get healthy, right? Not to put some Band-Aid, not to put some 30-minute Band-Aid on the problem, but to really seek to be healthy. Those are the two options. Which do you choose? Which do you regularly choose in your life? The low-hanging fruit or the real health that God might want to offer us? The title of today's message is The Renovation of the Heart. Last week, I introduced a series and I reminded us that we all need renovation. We all desperately need it. And for the next six weeks, we're going to address specific areas in our lives that need to be transformed by grace. Areas such as our hearts, our minds, our hands, right? The things that we say, we, we're actually going to talk about addiction, our habits. How can God liberate us from our addictions, the habits that, that we have been enslaved to? Uh, we're gonna talk about our speech, our attitude, our passions, and we wanna we want do a full-scale renovation of our lives. But today, we're gonna start with the heart. We're gonna start with the heart. 
I've got three main points for our sermon. Uh, The first is this, the need for heart renovation. Why are we starting with the heart, okay? Why do we need it? Second, the hope. The hope for heart renovation. And thirdly, the way to heart renovation. So we're gonna look at the need for heart renovation, the hope for it, and thirdly, uh, the way, the way to get it. Well, we're, re- we're beginning with the renovation of the heart because it's the core of who we are. It's the core of who we are. There's no more important or more powerful transformation that we can experience than the renovation of our hearts. You see, our hearts are the true source of our desires, our wills, and our decisions. That's where all these things come from, right? Our words, our decisions, our actions, all of that flows from our hearts. The Bible actually divides human nature into two basic parts. If you read the Bible, uh, it's dichotomistic, right? Uh, There's two parts, and there's the inner being, and then there's the outer being, okay? The inner being is your heart. So when the Bible talks about your soul, right? Uh, Your heart, your mind, all of that is the inner being, but it can be summarized as the heart. The outer being is the flesh, right? Your physical body, right? Uh, Those are the two parts. Now, here's a question. Which is the real you? Your inner being or your outer being? Which is the most important part of you? Your body, your flesh, what you look like, or who you are inside, your inner being, your soul, your mind, your will, your heart, Where is your identity located? Who are you? Where is your identity located? Is it found in what you look like, in what you do, your gifts, your abilities, your talents? And the answer is no. Your identity is found in the heart. Who you really are is found in the inner being. Uh, One simple but clear reason why our true identity is found in our inner being is because it is the only part of us that remains constant through change. That's why. Your inner being, your heart, is the only part of you that stays the same, that remains constant constant through change. You can cut your hair, you're still the same person. You can lose 20 pounds, gain 100 pounds, and you are still the same person. You might feel and act differently, but your identity is the same. You can even lose parts of your body, your members, your fingers, your limbs, and you're still the same. You can lose your health and and, and experience a traumatic disease. You can lose the ability to speak, to walk, to talk, and to hear, and you are still the same person. Your identity persists. Why? Because your inner being, your heart remains the same. Your heart is the core of who you truly are. It is the most important part of you. And I know there are times where you're like, no, you know, like my looks are really important, right? My health is really important. No, your heart is the most important part of you. Let me share a couple verses that that remind us of the centrality of the heart. Proverbs 4.23, you may have heard this before. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life, right? An older version that we might have heard in church is guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. It is the wellspring of life. Um, The author of Proverbs is exhorting us to guard our hearts. He's exhorting us to focus on the heart, to be vigilant and caring for our hearts because it's the source of our lives. It's the source of everything. It is central to all that we do and all that we are. That's what the author of Proverbs is telling us. Jesus reiterates this in Luke 6, verses 43 to 45. This is what he says. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, 
nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. That's the key, last idea for us. Out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth speaks. You see, church, the heart is central to who we are, and it's the root of what we do. In this passage, Jesus is associating fruit with behavior. And so good fruit is good behavior. Evil fruit is evil behavior. And he's literally telling us that our mouths are the overflow of our hearts. That if our hearts treasure good things, then we will produce good fruit. And yet if your heart treasures and and delights in and pursues evil things, you know what Jesus says? Then your heart and your mouth and your hands will produce evil. It makes a lot of sense to us. It's pretty straightforward. But then why do we do the things that we do? If we know that. If we know we treasure, if we treasure evil things, we'll do evil. But no one, none of us want evil in our lives, right? None of us want rampant sin and idolatry and addiction in our lives. We don't want to be rebels. Yet why do we do the things that we do? Why do we overeat? Why are we so critical and angry? Why are we so lazy and idle? Why can't we get out of bed, go to work, go to class, right? Be motivated. Why do we struggle with lust and greed? The answer is in our hearts. The answer is in your heart. You can't blame your environment. You can't blame your conditioning. You can't blame technology. It's not your phone's fault that you're addicted to pornography. It's not, you know, Dunkin' Donuts or In-N-Out or McDonald's fault that you are addicted to food, right? It's not your friend's fault that you are addicted to partying and, and uh, that kind of lifestyle. You know, it's not J. Crew or Amazon's fault that you're addicted to shopping. Why are we the way that we are? Why do we do the things that we do? It's our hearts. It's because our hearts treasure those things. Our hearts have an appetite for those things. We're pursuing those things, so we get them. And we bear that kind of fruit. We bear that kind of fruit. Knowing this, knowing that the heart is the source, knowing that the heart is the fountain, Jesus always goes for the heart. He always pursues us in our hearts and he knows that that is the only means to true transformation. Jesus doesn't wanna just change your behavior. He doesn't wanna just make sure you come to church at 9.45 or 11.45 and go to a small group and then think you're okay. Jesus wants to go after your heart. This is what Paul Tripp says about our hearts, and I really love it, and I really appreciate it. This is what he says. He says, if my heart is the source of my sin problem, then lasting change must always travel through the pathway of my heart. It is not enough to alter my behavior or to change my circumstances. If the heart doesn't change, the person's words and behavior may change temporarily because of an external pressure or incentive. But when the pressure or incentive is removed, the changes will disappear. You guys get that? We can all be conformed to change based on pressure, based on uh, an incentive. If your parents are like, I'll give you $1,000 if you get straight A's, you'll try harder, won't you? Right? If your boss is like, if you come in on time for 40 days straight, I'll give you a raise. You will do your darnest, right? to come in on time to get that bonus, to get that raise, right? So if we incentivize our behavior, yeah, we could see some change, but the moment the pressure's gone, the moment the fear's gone, the moment the incentive is gone, that change goes away, right? 
Uh, church, this is why wedding receptions, they don't truly begin until the pastors leave, right? Especially if there's an open bar. There's no fun until the pastors leave. Why? Because everyone is looking and, and no one wants to be judged by the pastor. No one wants to hit up the bar and take shots and get drinks and double fist and whatever it might be as long as the pastor's there. But once the pastor leaves, the party starts, right? That's why I leave weddings early now, right? For the sake of the bride and groom. I used to think I was down. I was like, you know, I'm young Pastor Mike. I'm cool. But no, they, I'm Reverend Michael Lee and I'm a killjoy, right? And so I always leave, and then the wedding gets fun, really, because that fear is gone, right? That, 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 the, the, the watching eyes are now gone, and people can do what they really want to do, right? That happens. I want to tell you that I've actually experienced this in my, in my own life, right? Um, when nobody is looking, when nobody is around, from the overflow of my heart, I've said curse words, Anger has spewed from my, from my lips. I, I can tell you, the last time I really cursed, and this is kind of weird for me to share this, don't judge me. Um, the last time I cursed hard, and I was truly angry. Uh, I wasn't working at this church. Um, I was working at my former church, and I was a worship director um, for my ministry, and we were a mobile church, right? We were a mobile church, and so what that meant was I had to tow a 4,000-pound trailer on my black forerunner. So if you come into church and you park on that back parking lot, you pass a black trailer, a uh, forerunner on your right. That is my car. That's my car. And uh, I would hitch a 4,000 pound trailer loaded up with all of our sound equipment, all of our education stuff. And uh, we would set up at Diamond Bar High School and we would do church. And after the service ends, we break that thing down, load up the trailer and I take it back. And I parked it in this huge RV warehouse huge RV warehouse. And I had been doing this for three years, four years, five years. And um, I was the only one pretty much doing it the whole time. I started getting salty. I was like, why can't we have rotations? Right? Why can't somebody come with me and help me? Why am I the only one coming an hour early to get the trailer, bring it to church, and then staying an hour late to, to do this? I started getting angry and salty about this. Well, um, I was dropping off the trailer one Sunday and um, What's really important is if you're going to drop it off, you have to unhitch everything, the electrical, the chains, all the nuts and bolts. And I thought I had done that because I've already been doing this for like three, four years. And it was like, you know, clockwork. And uh, so I get back in my car. I start, put it in drive, move forward. I hear this loud clang, right? And my car shakes and I freak out because I'm like, oh my gosh, I did not detach the trailer from my car. So I jump out of my car and look at it but I forgot to put the car in park. And so the car is rolling away from me. And it's like something out of a movie because the door is still open and the car is rolling. And I run to get to the driver's seat and the car slams in my face because that's what happens when cars move forward. I open it up, jump back in my car, slam on the brakes, but I was too late. I hit a boat. There's a boat in front of me and my car rolled into a boat and I cursed. I cursed hard. I was so angry. I was so upset. I was angry at, at my church. I was angry at God. I mean, God, how are you going to let this happen while I'm serving you? I was angry at myself. I was angry at my car and the trailer, and I cursed. And here's a crazy thing. If one of you guys were sitting next to me, I wouldn't have cursed. I would have said, man. I'm like, no. But because no one was with me, there was no pressure, there was no incentive, there was no approval, there was no judgment. I just let out all of the rage 
and the sin and the vomit and the cursing that came from my heart. I couldn't blame the trailer. I couldn't blame God. I couldn't blame my church. I was responsible. That was my heart. Out of the overflow of your heart, your mouth speaks. The heart is central. Now, there's a second reason why we need to pursue heart renovation. The first is because that's the core of who we are. If the heart doesn't change, real transformation will never take place. The second is this. If the heart changes, then everything changes. If the heart doesn't change, nothing changes. But if the heart changes, everything changes. And I'm not just saying that to create a soundbite or a nice phrase. I'm saying it, saying it because that's what Jesus tells us. He tells us that if the heart changes, everything changes. Look at Matthew 23, 25 to 26. Matthew 23, this is what he says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. This is a famous passage. We've heard it probably over and over again. And we just generally think that, man, Jesus is just laying into the Pharisees. He's condemning them for their hypocrisy. He's condemning them because all they care about is outward appearance, reputation, what people think of them when in fact their hearts are full of greed, full of vanity. Later, he's going to call them whitewashed tombs, but inside they're just dead bones. But look at what Jesus says in verse 26. We always miss over this. We always forget this. He says, if you clean the inside of the cup, what will happen? The outside will be clean. Jesus is telling us that if we purify our hearts, then our actions, our words, the rest of our lives will be clean. He's telling us that if your heart changes, if our hearts change, then everything changes as well. This is why we need a renovation of the heart. Because the hearts are the core of who we truly are. And because if we renovate our hearts, we can renovate our entire lives. Second point today is the hope. The hope for heart renovation. Now, many of you, when you hear that you need a renovation of the heart and that a renovation of the heart will change your life, you're like, I want that. That's good. That's what I need. And so we then go into a reflective, self-corrective mode. Is that you? If you're like, okay, you know, like Pastor Mike's listed all these heart dysfunctions, you know, all these issues, and, and that's me. And I don't want to live like that, especially not in 2017. I want to change, all right? Um, and you might think it's time to stop. It's time to cut these things out of my life and to live a life that God's called me to live. And if that's you, I want to warn you that you may be going down a path of works rather than grace. Your intentions might be good, yeah. We don't want to live like this. We don't want to live for ourselves. We don't want to live addicted to the things of this world. But if, if you think that, man, all I need to do is make some resolutions. All I need to do is get committed, get accountability, get a plan and do this, then you might be going down a path of works rather than grace. You may be following the prescription of religion rather than the way of the gospel. You see, the way of religion consists of three main missteps. Three main steps, but I'm going to call them missteps. First, it's just contrition. Second, correction. And then self-perfection. Contrition, correction, and self-perfection. First, we're sorry for what we've been doing. Okay? Contrition. We see that things need to change, and we're convicted that they're wrong. Okay? That's a good place to start, contrition. 
But then what do we do next? We try to self-correct. We try to change our habits. We try to change our behaviors. We try to do whatever we can to change. It is all is that whole list of New Year's resolutions, the better you that you want to create. And all of this is driven by the idea of self-perfection. Self-perfection. I don't know, we don't, we don't hear that phrase too often, but think about that, okay? It's all driven by our pursuit of becoming our ideal self. Do you know who that is? Can you describe to me your vision, your version of your ideal self? I think we can. I think a lot of us can. Right? But why do you chase this person? Why do you pursue him so hard? Why do you pursue her so hard, your ideal self so hard? This person is the put-together, disciplined person you thought you'd become by the time you graduated college. Right? Single adults, married couples. Think about that. When you were going through college, didn't you have a vision of the kind of person you'd be by the time you graduated? It's the person that you thought you'd become by the time you finally got married. It's the perfect parent you thought you'd be. The perfect children you expected to raise. It's the disciplined, refined, respectable, successful life that you expected to live by the time you hit 35, 40, 50 I love what Matt Chandler says about the self-perfection and pursuing the ideal self. He says, the truth is, you will be hard-pressed to find anyone who's lied to you and failed you and disgusted you more than you have. Think about that. Has anyone lied to you more than you? Has anyone let you down and given you broken promises as much as you? And all of the, the, the resolutions, right? And the ideals that your perfect self had you chasing, had you wanting, had you pursuing. I know that is so true for me. And are you counting on that person to be your rescue? Are you counting on perfect Elizabeth to save you? Perfect Josh to redeem you? Seriously, an improved version of you. When has the ideal version of yourself actually helped you, made you a better person? If anything, it's just frustrated us. It's produced in us more guilt, more failure, more anger, and more frustration. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you to abandon all hope of renovating your own heart, of self-perfecting. It cannot be done because our hearts need so much more than just a little bit of tinkering. Your heart needs so much more than a couple of New Year's resolutions. Your heart needs so much more than a makeover. We need a transplant. We need a heart transplant. And this is what God tells us. This is what God tells Israel in Ezekiel 14. And I'm going to use the NIV because I love the wording. And it's so helpful here. This is chapter 14, verse 1. Some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat down in front of me. Then the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? Therefore to them, therefore speak to them and tell them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. When any of the Israelites set up idols in their hearts and put a wicked stumbling block before their faces and go to a prophet, I, the Lord, will answer them myself in keeping with their great idolatry. I will do this to recapture the hearts of the people of Israel 
who have all deserted me for their idols. What an awesome passage. See here in Ezekiel 14, some of the elders of Israel went before the Lord and they wanted to talk to him. They wanted to inquire of him, but before they could even get a word in, before they can say, "Uh, God, we need your help in the nation, our families, worship. Can we talk about a couple things? Before they can even get a word in, God tells them, you have hearts full of idols. God tells them that their hearts were being ruled by things other than the Lord. He condemns them and says, you know, you are in love and you are worshiping created things rather than the creator. But here's the amazing thing about this passage. Even though it is true that these elders and the entire nation of Israel are an idolatrous, rebellious, sinful people, God doesn't turn away from them. He doesn't reject them. You know what he does? He says, let him come. Let the elders come. I'm going to speak to them. I'm going to answer them despite their idolatry to recapture the hearts of the people of Israel. You see that in verse 5? I will do this to recapture the hearts of the people of Israel who have deserted me for their idols. Church, this is the hope of our hearts, that God is jealous for your heart, that God is willing to fight and work to recapture our rebel hearts, our idolatrous, divided, wicked hearts. He knows, he knows we're struggling. He knows we're full of sin. He knows that we love ourselves and we love our jobs too much and and our families too much and we love our vacation hours too much and food and recreation. He knows that. And his response is, not forget you guys. His response is, I'm gonna win them. I'm gonna recapture their hearts. I'm gonna show them that I'm a better lover. I'm a greater God than anything that this world could possibly offer. Isn't that an amazing hope? That God will not rest until your heart is his. Truly, there is no one like God. There's no one who loves you like our God. I know I'm talking a lot about my wife today, and I hope she's in this service, and so I hope she doesn't get mad at me. Um, Did you know my wife and I, there's one thing that we never tell each other, and we never tell each other that we will love each other unconditionally. Ooh, what? Isn't that what husbands and wives are supposed to do? We never say it to each other. I've never promised it to her, and she's never promised it to me. You know why? Because there are things that I can do to wreck our marriage. She might forgive me if I have a moment of indiscretion with another. She might forgive me. But if she didn't, I wouldn't be angry with her. Perhaps she would forgive me if I betrayed her trust. Perhaps. But if I took a multitude of lovers, a multitude, not just one, one time, but that was my habit and my addiction and my lifestyle, you know what she would do? It's over. It's done. She is through with me. Unconditional love, no way. Conditions. You are not allowed to take a a multitude of lovers. If I over and over again betray her and abuse her, it is done. California, no-fault divorce. The papers will be filed whether I sign it or not. It is over. I know that. I understand that. I am in a covenant relationship with her, and there there are things that we have promised 
but we never have promised each other unconditional love. But our God, our God is a relentless lover. Our God is a jealous God and he fights to recapture your hearts, even though we have taken a multitude of lovers. Even though we are so prone to wander, even though he has every right to end it with us, end this relationship and disown us, he fights to recapture your heart. You know what that means? God loves my wife better than I do. And that God loves my wife better than I ever can. And God loves me better than she ever can towards me. There is a love that God has for you that you cannot give yourself, that no woman or child or family member or boyfriend or girlfriend could ever offer you because God's love is this relentless, holy, jealous love that is set to recapture your heart even if it's filled with sin and idolatry despite the fact that it's filled with sin and idolatry. So we've seen our need for renovation and we've seen our hope for renovation. The hope is not you. It's not our our resolutions. The hope is the fact that God, God is relentless and he fights to recapture our hearts. Now, how do we get this? How can we experience this kind of heart renovation that God promises that we so desperately need? And the third point is the way to renovation. The book of Ezekiel closes with an amazing promise that God makes to his people. God tells us how he is going to recapture the hearts. And I love that fact. I love the fact that he does this because it's not just like an amazing promise, but he's like, this is how I'm going to do this. This is how I'm going to win your hearts. And it's not simply with just love and kindness. He's not just gonna woo us with his singing and, and, and give us riches and blessing and say, oh yeah, that's how I'm going to win the people back. No, God says he's gonna do heart surgery. He says he's gonna do heart surgery on his people. Look with me to Ezekiel 36. God tells his people, for I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. Amen. This is the promise that God made to his people. He knew their hearts were filled with idolatry. He knew their hearts were filled with sin. He knew. He knew they needed to be cleansed and he knew they couldn't cleanse themselves. God promised Israel a new heart and a new spirit. He promised to take their hearts of stone and give them a heart of flesh. He knew that Israel couldn't keep the Ten Commandments. It was just only 10, and they couldn't keep it, let alone the 613 laws of the Old Testament. God knew that even on their best days, they would be terrible law keepers. They'd be utter law breakers. But what does God say? I'm going to put my spirit in them. That his spirit would indwell his people to empower them and enable them to keep the law and to live the holy lives that God has called us to live. Church, this is called the promise of the new covenant. This is the new covenant promise that God has made Israel. And this is the vision that God gave his people. 
This is the blueprint for how God is truly going to be their God and they're going to be, become his people. And, and this new covenant was fulfilled completely in Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfilled the new covenant when he gave his body and he shed his blood for us. That cleansing of sin, that purity of heart that God promised, that was purchased through the bloodshed work of Christ. That reconciliation, I'm gonna be your God, you're gonna be my people, that was won and established through Jesus Christ on the cross. You see, it's through the gospel of Jesus that God is actually able to recapture his people. Up until the work of Christ, it's, it's, it's faith in God's promises. It's God, God's word, his promise that he's gonna recapture their hearts, his promise that he's gonna, he's gonna give you a new heart and take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. All of this is, is covenants and promises made to his people. But in Christ, those promises come to fruition those words become an actuality in Jesus Christ. God has worked to recapture his people through the ransom of his son. Jesus was ransomed so that our hearts could be recaptured. This is the first way to the heart of renovation, uh, to heart renovation that we need, okay? You and I, we need it. How do we get it? It's through Jesus Christ. To believe in the work of Christ and to allow your heart to be recaptured by the gospel. Friends, we cannot renovate our own hearts. We cannot perfect ourselves, but in Christ, there is an author and there is a perfecter for us. The first way back to renovation is Jesus and believe that he is able, that he is sufficient to renew and renovate our hearts. But there's also a second way for our hearts to experience an ongoing renovation. And I think this is extremely helpful and extremely practical for those of you who might be Christian um, and have been just struggling with sin. You're like, I know, I know Jesus is always the answer to every Bible study question, but still, my heart's struggling. I know Jesus is the answer, but still, I love this world. I love money. I love food, right? I care so much about the way I look. I care so much about whether I'm single or dating or lonely or satisfied. Um, this is a famous verse. It's Psalm 37, one of my favorite. And I hope it's an encouragement to you. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. See, Jesus earlier, he told us, if you treasure good, it'll produce good. If you treasure evil, it'll bear evil fruit. And he's just connecting for us our treasure, our delight, our worship, our joy with the kind of desires and the actions and the behaviors that flow out of us. And he's saying, put your joy in me. Pursue me, delight in me. And you know what you will experience? New desires, greater desires, all those desires for God that we don't have, that we feel so guilty for. We're like, oh God, why don't I have more, why don't I have more of a desire to, to pray or to serve the poor or to read the Bible or to worship you or to fast or to uh, love my neighbor or to care for my coworker or to be honest or whatever it might be. Why don't I have a greater desire? God says, delight in me. Delight in me and I'll give you greater desires. 
Um, C.S. Lewis, he's super helpful on this issue because I still think we struggle with desires. I had one sister who was really struggling with just guilt. And she was like, Pastor Michael, my desires are too strong. I, I love this world too much. I love myself too much. What do I do? You know what C.S. Lewis would say? He says, it's not that your desires are too strong. It's they're too weak. Your desires are too weak. And even more so, he says, we are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased because we settle for medication. We settle for lowly things. And his illustration is this. We settle for mud pies. We slum it in the dirt and in the mud. And we think, you know what? This is good. This is fun. This is satisfying. This is fulfilling. This is how I want to live my life in the slums when God offers us a day at the sea, when God offers us paradise, when God offers us joy inexpressible. We're like, you know what? I'd rather have the mud now, right? I'd rather take the low hanging fruit now. I'd rather take what's easy now, that retail therapy, that one night stand, that moment of gluttony, that greed. I'd rather have that. And C.S. Lewis says, your desires are too weak. Because he's saying, if you really wanted satisfaction, you wouldn't be satisfied with that junk. If you really wanted joy and happiness, you wouldn't find it in that cheap purchase you would want something greater, something eternal, something life-giving, something that is divine. And God offers that to us. Would you go for it? He says, taste and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Try placing your joy in him. Try treasuring him. Try seeking first his kingdom. See what happens, church. See the Lord change your heart as he becomes your treasure and your joy. Let's pray together. God, we, we pray asking you in this moment to meet us and to commune with us, Lord, as we long for you and as we long for real fulfillment, for true healing, for joy and rest in our hearts, God, I pray and ask that you would draw near to us because it's so hard for us to draw near to you. We're so limited, we're so burdened, weary and weak. God, how could we ever ascend to your holiness and before your throne? And so, Lord, we ask that in this moment you would send your Holy Spirit to renew our hearts. God, that you would send your Holy Spirit to give us renewed hope, not in what we can accomplish for ourselves, but what you can and will accomplish in us. Would you renew our hope again in the work of Jesus Christ? Help us to believe that you can change us. Help us to believe that you are the kind of God who wants to, that you love us and you want to be intimate with us. Lord, we, we do pray 
that you would be our treasure. Would you have mercy on us for exchanging your truth for lies? God, would this be a moment where you recapture our hearts? Thank you in Jesus' name we pray.